Father, guide us this morning in your word. Teach us about your glory. Teach us about the significance of manna, both in Israel's life and in our life today through communion. Teach us, Lord, about our propensity to grumble and whine and help us understand why we do that, Father. And Lord, just open our eyes to where we have fallen short of your glory, to come in repentance to you, and to fully realize who we are in Christ and the power of the Spirit in us today. So we thank you and look forward to see how you're going to work through your word today. And all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So in Exodus 16 is where God brings manna down for the first time. And so I want to talk today about manna. I want to talk today about the grumbling of Israel, which was the occasion of the manna. I want to talk about the glory of God. There's also another concept that's prevalent through this passage, and it's that God is testing Israel to see if they'll obey. So we're going to talk about all those things, and then this sermon then will lead into communion. And it will be kind of seamless from the sermon to communion, so, so you'll see that in a moment. But I want you to think, first of all, back when you were a kid, or, or if, if you are a young person here learning to ride a bicycle, how many of you had training wheels on your bicycle? So how many of you didn't have training wheels? How many of you were the, the, the you know, was it because your parents didn't care about you? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so training wheels were designed so you can learn to ride your bike without any real danger. It was kind of an assistance. You don't fall over and skin your elbow or your knees. So Israel so far in the Exodus, we could use this imagery of a training wheels. God has had them on training wheels so far. They've been very passive in this so far, that, that God, through the ten plagues, they just watched. And often it mentions in the, in the story of Exodus, of the ten plagues, that when, although the plagues were hitting Egypt, Israel was exempt from the plagues. When Egypt had boils on their cows, the Israelites didn't. When Egypt had darkness, the Israelites had light. So God was, was guiding them through the process on training wheels. And as Brandon brought to us last week, the Red Sea. He brought him to the Red Sea. So this, it seemed like strategically a really foolish move of you, God, to corner us here at this sea. And God says, you just watch. I'm going to fight for you. Training wheels. Well, starting in chapter 16, the training wheels come off. Because what are the purpose of training wheels? To teach you to ride and learn how to balance so that you don't need them. And the risk now is higher without training wheels, but you have been trained to not have them. God is training Israel to stand up to the, full, the fullness of what it means to follow him through these wilderness wanderings and struggles. So with that idea, it's been four weeks since the Red Sea incident. We'll see that in a moment. Four weeks, so they've been in the wilderness Yahweh has fought for them. They were pretty much passive, and they watched what God was doing. He said, watch and see. Just before 16, at the end of 15, there's the water of Merah, and it was bitter. God brings them to this place called Merah, and it was bitter water. And, and what they do? They whined. So let's take the word whining and grumbling as synonyms, okay? Why would you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to kill us? Brandon talked to us about last week about that. We're going to see more today. So Moses picks up this log, throws it in the water, and the water turns from bitterness to sweet. And they're able to drink water, and they move on to this oasis. This oasis had like 12 springs of water and 70 trees. 
which I'm not sure what to do with 12 and 70, very biblical, significant numbers. We're not going there today. But so then God rested them at this oasis. 16, though, the training wheels are off. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at manna in the glory of God. But I'm going to start in chapter 15, verse 25. And listen, there's not a slide for this. It says, there the Lord made them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. If you're reading your Bible, you'll see the word Lord in all capital letters. That is the Hebrew name Yahweh of God. It's his Hebrew name. So I'm gonna, whenever we see the word Lord, all capital letters, I'm going to use the word Yahweh. If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes... I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. So that sets us up for the story of the manna and the glory of God. I'm going to do this kind of backwards. We're actually going to start in verse 16 and read through verse, excuse me, verse 6, read through verse 15 to set up this first point about manna and the glory of God. Then we're going to come back to verse 1. Seems strange, but that's me. So... Let's read together, not read together, listen. Chapter 16, verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't they know that already? I mean, look at the, the things they've seen. This is very important. What have they seen? Incredible destruction in the ten plagues brought upon Egypt, of which they were exempt from. They've seen the glory of God in the Red Sea crossing, they are they were following God by day. It's a cloud that is leading them. The clouds in front of them, clouds behind them. At nighttime, it's a pillar of fire. So they're seeing this amazing work of God, and yet they're doubting: Is God really with us? Is God really good? So Moses has to continue to say, "Now you're really going to know Yahweh did this." And in the morning, you shall see the glory of Yahweh. Because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses and Aaron referring to themselves here. And Moses said, when Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to fill the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. This is very important that we understand that the circumstances of our life, some, sometimes we can blame certain people. You know, your boss at work or the elders that were standing up here, it's all their fault. Blah, 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 blah. Grumble, grumble. And in the end, if, if God is sovereign in your life, and would you agree he is? Well, we understand all the circumstances that come into our life. If God is sovereign in our life, an idea of sovereign is that God has the knowledge and the power and the goodness to carry out his will for you. When we grumble, ultimately, are we not grumbling against his plan? So, verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. 
In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. So, so far, the word manna has not occurred. You notice that? God and Moses are calling it bread. But when they see it, they say, what is it? So the phrase, what is it, is the word manna. So they actually named it themselves by asking, what is this? So just understand this. Functionally, the people of Israel named the bread manna by asking, what is this? It is the bread that the Yahweh your God has given you to eat. So, this first part is manna and the glory of God. In verse 7, it says, in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh. Then in verse 10, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. Now already, so what is the glory of the Lord? I asked, I asked the, the ministry team, we have a prayer meeting every morning before service and go over the service and we take communion together. And so I asked them, what, what is glory? When we say the glory of the Lord, what are we talking about? Get, speak, reach, speak out to me. What is the glory of the Lord? Every time I do this, I, why do I do this? I can't hear. I don't have my hearing aids in. So what were you saying, Bill? Magnificence, what a great word, the magnificence of God. Isn't it already the cloud and the fire magnificent? They've already seen that, but something even greater is going to happen. What's another synonym for glory? Awe, greatness, revelation. That's interesting. I had to think about that one, revelation. God is revealing himself in a way he hasn't yet. Oh, I love that. You're going to see the glory of the Lord. So what did they see that was different? I think we see this all the time. It's interesting. The book of Exodus mentions the word, the glory of Yahweh, 14 times. The only other books of the Bible that mention the glory of Yahweh more is Psalm, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. So the glory of God is very important in the book of Exodus. God wants to reveal himself. And the word glory appears to be this, this great, wonderful word that encapsulates so many things about who our God is. And I mean, you're going to learn about my glory through how I feed you. In the morning, bread will miraculously appear on the ground. In the evening, quail will come in, and you'll have your full of all you need to eat today, every day. The word glory after this story appears in Exodus 24, which is when God has given the Ten Commandments and the law, and then he inaugurates the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant he has with Israel in chapter 24, in verse 17, it says this. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The glory is supposed to cause us to go, oh, who am I? Who am I to stand before this magnificent, this splendid, this all-powerful God? Who am I? If you go to Exodus 34... Moses wants to know God in a deeper way. And of all the people, Moses knew God in a, in a significant way. No one else did, but he wants more. And he says to Yahweh, he says, I want to see your glory. 
And Yahweh responds, you can't see my face. Moses asked to see his glory. God said, you can't see my face. So a face represents who I am in, in my fullness. When I look at Tim, Tim looks at me. We see each other's faces. I know so much about Tim because I see his face. He sees mine. And Yahweh is telling Moses, you can't see my face. You can't know me to the fullest. Why? What did he say? Because if you see my face, you will. Surely you will die. You'll fall over dead on the spot. And so the glory of the Lord is revealed to the degree we can handle it. But often it is revealed in a manner that unnerves us. And that's what's happening here. So I want you to remember this idea of the glory of the Lord. This whole story is encapsulating this, that God is revealing his glory. That he is the only one to be worshipped. He is the almighty God and you should put no one before him. Which is what the law is about. What's the first commandment? I'm testing you here, aren't I? You shall have no other gods besides me. What's the second commandment? Brandon, you need to do a sermon on the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you shall not make a graven image of me. You've never seen me, so don't make an image of me and say, there's my God. So you have no other God besides me. Do not make an image. What's the third commandment? Do not take the name of Yahweh in vain. You treat God with the honor and respect. When I say I'm glorifying God, he reveals his glory to me, which is his splendor and magnificence that can undo me. But when I say I'm glorifying him, I'm giving him the honor due his name, the honor that's only due his name. So you think about the Bible tells us God is a jealous God. And you sometimes, well, jealousy is not good, is it? But there are certain occasions where jealousy is appropriate. The, the, and so to illustrate that on a human level, a husband and wife have a love for each other that no one else gets to come into that bubble. The two become one and no one else is allowed in there. And, 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 and for one of the husband or wife to give their love to someone else, the other spouse says, I'm jealous of that because that is only for me. It's the value made. It's the way God designed us. So we understand there's a place where jealousy is appropriate. And God is a jealous God. We should only worship him. Does that make sense? So I want you to keep that in mind as we continue to walk through the story. So, now let's look at the second point, grumbling and the concept of God testing us. Now we're going to walk back to chapter 16, verse 1. I'm going to read from here because I have underline I want to emphasize. They set out from Elam, that is that, that, um, that oasis that's mentioned in the 15. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of, it says sin there, but it's really pronounced sin. Okay, the wilderness of sin which is between Elam and Sinai. Sinai is where they're going to get the Ten Commandments in the law. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So the 15th day of the second month, they departed on the 15th day of the first month. So it's been a whole month. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, now look at this. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You go, okay, where's the disconnect? They have seen an unbelievable display of the power and glory of God and his goodness and kindness towards them and his ability to destroy one of the most dominant armies of the world. And as soon as they hit this road bump, 
So this is their first time the training wheels were off and they laid that bike down. Remember that day for you? Your elbow's all scraped up, your knee is scraped up. They're not doing well without their training wheels. So God is testing them, we're going to see. Verse 4, then Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Let me ask you a question there. That I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. Did God not know? So he had to test them? Is God absent knowledge? Is, are these people going to obey me? So is this testing for God to know? Or is this testing for Israel to learn something? I see a few heads, you know. If we take the rest of Scripture, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, knows all, present everywhere. So God is not wondering, what are they going to do? Well, I'll test them to see. He's testing them for their sake. And we're going to come back to that. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, at evening you shall know that it is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that we you grumble against us? And Moses said, when Yahweh gives you, when Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against Yahweh. Here is the mercy and grace of God. They're grumbling against God, and what does he do? He provides for them. Now, if you're a parent, you understand this completely. And if you used to be children, so I always want, don't want to pick on our children, because we were all children. That's not fair, Mom. And what's the response? Life's not fair. But we still take care of our children. And we are imperfect in what we do. Yahweh, though he's being grumbled against, blesses them. And it starts, it always says, meat in the evening and bread in the morning. Because the, the Jewish calendar starts at sunset. The day actually starts at sunset. So at the beginning of the day, you'll get your meat to eat. In the morning when you wake up, you'll get your bread to eat. And this went on for 40 years. Every day they got what they needed. They were not to gather more than they needed. If they gathered too much the next, and kept it overnight, the next morning it would be rancid and full of worms. But on the sixth day, they would have gathered twice as much as they needed because the seventh day was the Sabbath. And that next day it did not rot and worms were not there. So God preserved it. It is God's hand. It's not that God started something and went away. And watch, what are they going to do? God is intricately involved in everything they are doing. That is who our God is. He's omnipresent. He is right with us at every moment in everything that happens to us. So, I think this, um, every day you go gather your bread. How does this inform the Lord's Prayer? Think about it. Say it with me. Our Father, we, we'll all have different versions. That's okay, just say it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the and the glory forever. So 
give us our daily bread. You know, when we go home, we see, I can go home and see, if I didn't go to the grocery store, I could eat for a month. I may not like all the stuff in those cans that I haven't eaten in three years, but I have enough food in my house to last me a month, I bet. The concept of daily bread, I depend upon him every day to provide my needs. He set that pattern right here, and Jesus reminds us of it when he tells us how to pray. So grumbling. Why? Why is it part of, well, all I can speak is to Western man, United States and the Western world. Why are we so prone to whining? Do you believe we are? Or are we exceptions? Yeah. Um, I, I hope we're growing in the Lord so we don't grumble as much. But it just seems weird that we grumble a lot. What does that say about us? What does it say about our understanding of God, our relationship with him? So I have three things in your notes, and I almost never do fill in the blanks. So if you're one of those people who like to write in notes, you've got to fill in the blanks coming here. I don't, it won't be on the screen, so you've got to listen carefully. The first one is this, grumbling assumes God owes us something. Okay? Think about that. When your child says, that's not fair, what, what are they presuming? What, what are they, what, what's their presupposition behind that? You, mom and dad, owe me fairness by my definition of fairness. Okay? So grumbling assumes God owes us something. This speaks to our entitlement. Obviously, because I'm following you, God, you are indebted to me. And how I believe you should act, God, is not happening. So I'm just going to whine until I get what I want. Would you agree that God owes you nothing? That God is not indebted to you? The incredible, wonderful things God brings to us is all because of his great love and mercy, not because I deserve that love and mercy. Does that make sense? So, but I think we can say we agree to that, but yet tomorrow when something goes very wrong in our life, oh God, why are you doing this? You could have stopped this. And we have some form of grumbling. Last night I came, I came up yesterday afternoon to avoid the storm, which is good because this morning Highway 50 and Spooner Summit is closed, I guess. So um, Brandon would be doing an ad hoc sermon if I didn't have the wisdom to come up yesterday. Um, and talking with Ken and Laura, I stayed with Ken and Laura Hancock, and we were talking last night about this idea of, of how we see our God. How do we see him? And we tend to think we hear, I'm the servant and God is my master, my Lord, my creator, all the titles that God gives, and I serve him, I submit to him, I honor him, and, and he's good. See, is God, is God great, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good? All-good? Are you just tired of saying yes? Um, then therefore, I follow him. But grumbling would suggest this, that I actually have some goal or purpose in my life that's actually the most important thing to me, and that's what I'm serving, and God is over here, and God now is my servant to accomplish what's most important to me. Do you see the imagery? Is God the overarching thing that I submit to and serve and love because of his great 
kindness towards me? Or is there something I want in life that's really up there? And God is over here and saying, okay, God, I love you. Accomplish that. Then when God does not accomplish that, what do I do to God? Oh, you're not who you say you are. And you grumble and whine. Now, none of us are that overt. But I think that's behind grumbling. Is we have a view of God that is more my servant than my Lord. If I grumble because life didn't go the way I wanted to, does that possibly mean I think he owes me something? And you know, I've said this before, and as Teresa and I are getting ready to, to move into the next phase of our life in ministry, there's this mantra I have. I said it a couple weeks ago. If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Because he doesn't owe me to fulfill what I want in life. My whole purpose is to pursue what he wants for me in my life. It's called the will of God. That's what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. That you'll have a spirit of wisdom and knowledge to be filled with his will. So, I would suggest to you that grumbling might suggest we have a view of God that is actually idolatry. Because we've made something out to be greater than him. And that is my plans and my will. Make sense? Grumbling assumes God will not keep his promises. When I say God owes you nothing, there's nothing in me that obligates him to do something. What God is obligated to do is keep his promise. If he promises it, he will do it. What does he promise Israel? He's made it very clear to them, I'm going to take you through this wilderness and, and I'm going to deliver you to the land that flows with milk and honey. And what I'm asking from you is to obey me. And this first generation did not because they were idolaters. God was not the highest thing in their life. Their hopes and dreams and desires and comfort and belly and their thirst was their idol. And Yahweh was supposed to accomplish it. But God eventually fulfills his promise to the second generation. The first generation wandered for 40 years because they refused to honor God as God and to glorify him. I'm going to come back to that. If you think God won't keep his promises to you, either you misunderstood his promises. And sometimes we do that. I remember a young man at the Bible college in Reno when I was teaching there years ago. He moved to Reno. Didn't like Reno. But he said, God told me to move here because he said, I have a wife for you in Reno. So he was here like five or six years and no wife materialized. And he was mad at God. And he specifically said to me, God did not fulfill what he promised me. So let me ask you, if you're talking to him at that moment, do you say, yeah, God doesn't always do what he promises? Or do you say, you didn't hear him right? And we all agreed to that. We don't get to claim God didn't keep his promises because we had some subjective feeling we were supposed to do something, and God promised me. If we think God doesn't keep his promises, we don't really know who our God is yet. And that needs to drive back to Scripture to learn who our God is. The third reason we grumble, grumbling assumes God does not have a purpose for the hardships in our life. We've agreed God is sovereign over all. That he has power and knowledge to accomplish his will. And he has goodness that guarantees his purposes result in our benefit. But when the training wheels have come off, and it's hard, and we keep falling down and crashing, we say, is he really good? 
is, is, is he really all powerful? Because if he's all powerful, he could have stopped me from falling, right? Think, think of the latest tragedy in your life. Think of it. Could God have not, could God have stopped it from happening to you? Be a little more. Absolutely he could have, but he didn't. So is he asleep on the job? Does he not care about you? Then why did that tragedy happen to you? Because God has removed the training wheels. And he has a purpose for the pain in our life. And what is that purpose? Bring us closer to him. Make us like his son. Christ-likeness, holiness, sanctification, all these words are the same thing. That God has a goal in my salvation. The goal in my salvation isn't simply um, I'm forgiven, I go to heaven someday. The goal is when, when he takes me to be with him in heaven or the second coming in glory, that that whole life has been a, a process of becoming more and more like Jesus, growing in holiness, growing in sanctification, and that requires some pain. That re I cannot have training wheels on my bike if I want to be like Jesus. I have to hit the dirt many times to conform me into his image. So grumbling accomplishes nothing. The New Testament tells us not to grumble. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many things? 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's an interesting one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Ken and Lori, I'm going to pick on you. No, I'm going to praise you. They, they've opened their house to us. Anytime we need to come up because the storm, stay with them. And I'm always apologetic. Oh, I'm sorry. And they go, Tony, we want you here. They're some of the most hospitable people I've ever met. But sometimes I can be hospitable and go, oh, these people drive me nuts. You know, and, and that's the idea of being like Jesus while I whine like I'm not like Jesus. So interesting. Be hospitable, but don't whine about it. Because hospitality costs you something, does it not? Okay, hospitality costs you something, does it not? Okay, if, if you're new to the church, I always talk back to me. And then when I'm gone, talk back to him, okay, whether he asks you not to do it. So, okay, so that, that's the grumbling. Let's talk about God testing us. And I've already touched on it. The training wheels are off in our life. Um, I want you to listen to Douglas Stewart, who's an Old Testament scholar that I really like, in referring to God testing. God was testing his people throughout the Exodus events leading them in odd directions without fully explaining why. Have you ever wanted an explanation from God, didn't get it? Israel didn't get an explanation. Surprising them with potentially destructive enemy attacks even after they had left Egypt, the army coming at the Red Sea, requiring them to walk into and through deep ocean water, taking them to locations that lack the necessities of life. All of these challenges were part of a plan to develop a people's willingness to trust him. And that, that's an incredible state. Oh, we have the things up. So look at that. Where does it say that? Okay. All of these challenges were part of a plan to develop a people's willingness to trust him. We think about it, that's just true in life. For me to trust requires some trial that tests that trust. So God's taking the training wheels off and making it hard on them pushing them to trust him instead of themselves. Explaining everything in advance would have run counter to that plan. It was necessary for Israel to learn faith while confused, 
to learn faith while afraid, to learn faith while desperate, not just in theory, but under pressure of actual conditions where survival was uncertain and faith was tested to the limit. That is a life without training wheels. And is our God good and powerful and all-knowing and wise enough to sustain us? Is he, is he good and powerful, all-wise and all-loving to bring every pain in my life to, go to a good end, a good purpose? I'd suggest to you the New Testament talks about testing, but it has a different twist to it. The Old Testament testing we've seen, I'm going to test you as you to see if you will obey me. And we saw over and over, they failed. Tremendously failed. For, well, this is 1,500 years before Christ. So we have 1,500 years of God's patience, mercy, provision, and discipline, and Israel fails miserably. Before we get to judgmental on Israel, Israel is us, okay? They're simply a people God chose, an average human beings who were in desperate need of a savior. But to show you you're in desperate need of a savior, you first need to know you need to be saved from something. So the history of Israel in part is to teach us that humans are hopelessly lost in their sin and cannot solve our own sin problem, no matter how hard we try, we're almost always going to turn our back on our, our God and go to some form of idolatry. And today, you and I don't bow before four-legged creatures or trees or whatever part of nature. What do we bow before? Nothing, because I am the top of the food chain. I make myself God. So God had to show us through the history of Israel our need for sin. So the testing of the Old Testament is to show them they're sinners. The New Testament changes it completely because God brings the new covenant to bear. The new covenant is expressed for us in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, and in Jeremiah 31, 30. And there it talks about the fact that you, God's going to bring a new covenant where he forgives you and cleanses you of all your sins, wipes them away. He's going to bring into you and, and gen regenerate your heart, give you a new heart. Take that heart of stone that is against him and give you this heart that beats alive for God. That's what Ezekiel 36, 26 says. Then Ezekiel 36, 27 is the crescendo. And I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you, which he will empower you to walk in my statutes. Israel, sad for them, but their purpose was to show you guys are sinners, just like every human being on earth. Romans chapters 2 and 3 teaches us this. So I'm going to solve your sin problem with the new covenant. And the consummation of that new covenant is Jesus Christ's life, death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, which we're going to celebrate in just a moment through communion. So now God doesn't test you to see if you are a sinner. You know it, right? Okay. God doesn't, I'm going to do this all day, guys. You know your sin problem, correct? But do you know you've been redeemed from it? It's not your master anymore. You've been changed from the inside out if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now his testing is not, will you obey? His testing is, I've given you the power to obey. Now I'm going to use these tests in your life to bring some pressure upon you to conform you to the image of my son and bring your salvation to a completion. 
And this has been one of my themes the last couple of years here. So I hope you're not sick of hearing it. Because I have three more weeks after this that you're going to hear it three times. And that is everything that happens in your life, every time you fall off that bike without training wheels and pain comes to your life, whatever it is, runs through the hand of God to make you like his son, to make you holy like his son, to make you compassionate like his son, to make you gracious like his son, to make you patient like his son, to make you um, love righteousness like his son. We could go on and on. That's God's design for everything that happens to me, everything happens to you. And if we trust him, we will celebrate in that. I, I want you to listen to these verses about trials and, and, and um in your life today, about how God tests you today. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So according to this, the implication is you want to be perfect and complete? You need to be tested by trials. James 1, 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. First Peter, in this you rejoice in, in suffering. For now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, various tests. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So stop there. What's more precious than gold, according to this? Faith, yes, but tested faith. Untested faith is not precious. It's tested faith that is more precious than gold. And tested faith is painful. Do you hear me? But what is our tendency when we're tested, when pain comes to our life? What's our tendency? The first thing we do, oh, God, please take it away. When in fact, that's his instrument to make me like his son. Now, I do believe we should pray and ask for God to take away the struggles in our life. He tells us that in, in Matthew chapter 6. But in the end, like Paul asked three times, and he said, you know what, God? I submit. I submit that this pain has a purpose, and you are utterly trustworthy to accomplish your purposes in this pain that you've allowed to come into my life. And let's keep reading. Though you have not seen him, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I, I want that to be said about me and all the pain in my life. That in the middle of my pain, I rejoiced with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Scripture teaches us that you got saved in the past. You're being saved today. And you will be saved in the future. And do you know what that future salvation looks like? It's when you stand before him fully like his son, which required fire-tested faith. Let me read this and we're going to do communion. I'm, I'm taking too long. If we fully grasp this concept of God testing us, it should result not in a quick desire to be removed from the test, but a desire for God to accomplish his intended purpose, his intended result, which is your sanctification, your holiness, 
Christ-likeness, which is ultimately your full and final salvation. I'm going to read that again. If we fully grasp this concept of God testing us, it should not result in a quick desire to be removed from the test, but a desire for God to accomplish his intended result, which is my sanctification, my holiness, which is Christ-likeness, which ultimately happens at my full and final salvation at his second coming. Make sense? Now, kind of the purpose of this chapter is communion. 